Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Welcome to episode 13 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler and in this episode, I'm actually going to share with you a chat that my colleague Tim Perkins had with Australian maths teacher extraordinaire uh, Eddie Wu. Some of you would be well aware of Eddie's work. Um, he came to, I guess, prominence um, a few years ago when his um, YouTube channel went viral. Uh, he developed a YouTube channel uh, essentially to help a kid who was uh, missing class through illness. And um, by sharing what was being done in class via YouTube with this kid, it then sort of started just organically being shared amongst other kids across Australia and then from there across the world. He also um, was a finalist in the Global Teachers Award, um, and this again sort of helped... Um, his reputation, so to speak, um, sort of gather gather a pace. And from there, he's now been um, in Australian of the Year running. He's been on, he's had his own TV show. He's featured on um, Q&A. He's had a book published. He really is, um, you know, uh, flying high in terms of uh, spreading the word, not only about maths, but, but teaching more generally. And... Um, Earlier this year, we uh, Tim and I uh, were presenting at a, a number of events. In fact, Cut Through Coaching was a, a, a main sponsor of the Positive Schools events um, across uh, Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales, and WA. And as well as speaking there, Eddie was also one of the speakers. And Tim, being something of a bit of a, a maths tragic himself, uh, took advantage of being able to sit down with Eddie and, and have a bit of a chat and he uh, threw the phone down in front and hit record, and we thought we might share that chat with you here. Um, I'm very excited to be with someone who I hold in very high regard here today. We're at the uh, Positive Schools Conference in Melbourne, um, 2019, and with Eddie Wu, who uh, is very well known in Australian education circles these days, and probably much more broadly than just Australian education circles as well. And the reason that he's so well known is that he's an incredibly charismatic guy who is highly articulate, who is also into teaching maths. And Eddie's done wonderful things for maths education and really turned a lot of kids and adults onto maths, um, which is a beautiful legacy to have in this life, I think. And as someone who's taught a lot of maths myself, I'm very excited by that. So fantastic to have you here today Eddie. Tim it's absolutely my pleasure yeah thanks for the time oh, it's, it's, it's great it's um so look I've got a question for you you're a maths teacher you're a mathematician you're highly in demand um, I just saw a photo of your calendar and it's completely <laughs> crazy and how many interviews have you done can yeah. you count that high? Yeah, look, that's funny because, you know, I'm a, I'm a mathematician. I should be right down on the numbers, but I've probably lost count at this point. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. I was in Malaysia earlier this year in the January school holidays, and I was there working with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Training, 
because um, I, I didn't know this, but uh, it's actually a huge export of Australia um, after coal for education, you know, um, tertiary education. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're all sort of resource rich, but um, I was over there showing the, the best of Australian education, what we have to offer. And uh, I got popped onto this sort of late night talk show, which is lovely, kind of like, uh, like a Malaysian Jimmy Kimmel, I guess. And um, I was looking forward to it and I, I looked it up beforehand and I saw, oh, it's usually a panel, a bunch of people, host talks to them, no big deal. And I arrived in the studio and on the set there were only two chairs set up. And I said, well, that's the host. And I, just, I guess that's me. Where's, where are the rest of the chairs? And he said, oh, no, 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 it's just you and me for the hour. A one hour show. Um, and by the end of that, he said, so how many interviews have you done? Because you feel like you've got a lot of answers for everything. And I said, I, I've lost count. I don't know. So yeah, maybe, maybe. 50, 100, 150? Uh, I think more really than 50. No, really no clue. I don't know, I'm, I'm worried about you as a maths Lots of people have, you've been on lots of panels, lots of interviews, as we've stated, exploring your views of maths education, maths education in Australia. Um, you've talked about your personal life in some interviews that you've been involved with. Um, what don't we know about it? Something that you've never shared in an interview before, perhaps. Wow, to say never ever shared in any interview is, um, that, that's a challenge. Yeah. Um, I'd probably say, you know what, um, when, <laughs> this is really ridiculous, but you asked for something that's never yeah, let's go. Um, when, when I was, I don't know, like primary school aged, um, I worked out how to make my ears wiggle back and forth. And I nice. thought, oh, okay, this is like whistling. It's just the thing everyone can do. And um, I showed this to my brother and he's like, that's that's really weird. That's possibly something wrong with you. You shouldn't you shouldn't do, keep doing that. But to this day, right, I can uh, I can make my ears wiggle back. Can and we forth. say that again? Uh, it's not a, <laughs> it's, it's not a huge. It's not like wow, a mutant ability. That's incredible. Um, I don't even know why that serves some sort of evolutionary purpose. But there you go. I'm literally. I'm very glad that I've asked you that question. Yeah, that, that's a first. Where I was probably heading was, you know, <laughs> and maybe I should have clarified, what's something we don't know about your view on education? Uh -huh. yes, yes, you're, yes. You're in a situation, I suppose, of some degree of constraint in that you work for the Department of Education, mm. you've got various roles, there's boards that you sit on, uh, and I suppose you need to be slightly circumspect sometimes mm. in responses around things. What, if you were to distill your sort of view, philosophy of education, how, where would you go with that? Yeah, okay. That's an interesting question. Distilling all the thoughts I've got around what the purpose of schooling is, and particularly the, the function of teaching and its relationship to learning, because of course they're not the same thing. And for me, it's really about these human beings who we get the wonderful privilege of, of caring for and, and looking after and, and guiding as they go through their educational journey. I think back to when I was at school and the impact that many of my teachers had on me. And I can only imagine that today, even more than 20, 25 years ago, uh, teachers are often the people who have the most profound impact. Mm. You know, they're the adults who get the most long-term time with many children. I mean, I think about um, some of my students and the, the lack of time they spend with their own families or the quality of that time, even when it is there in quantity. And I feel as though my philosophy is all about what does this student need? I mean, I think about the, the 
definition of education, etymologically, that, yeah. that word means we're about leading people out from a state of immaturity and a lack of perspective and appreciation yeah. for the world. And we all have our different angle, maths, English, science, poetry, performance, um, on showing students, children, where they are now and where they can go. Yeah. So my philosophy is all about bringing that out. Well, we heard somebody talk at the conference earlier today about this idea of a bit of a ladder as well, and that perhaps part of our role, and I think it fits with your response there, part of our role is that we're putting extra rungs on that ladder for them to allow them to, to be led mm. out of a, and you know, it's not a deficit model, it's not about being led out of ignorance into enlightenment, mm. but certainly that, that's an opportunity, I suppose. Mm. Um, what question would you ask yourself if you were interviewing you, Eddie? Now, this is a <laughs> question. It is, it is. Uh, you know what? I, I can tell you, not just the question I would ask myself, I can tell you the question I am asking myself. Um, the, the challenge is, one of the reasons why I am still asking myself this question is because I don't have a well-formed answer okay. to this question. Yeah. But I think the, the question itself is well-formed. Uh, and that question is, where to next? Um, and this is obviously a question that you can apply to anyone, but I think about, um, I'm very fortunate to have had um, a lot of recognition over the last couple of years, um, some of which has been deserved, some of which has been not. Uh, but for me, to think about the opportunities that I've had, the, um, the things I haven't been able to predict, you know, being able to have a national, international platform, to be able to do things like write a book or, or host a TV show, these are all things which I could never have guessed that I might have done five or ten years ago. Uh, but to know that I've, I've had this opportunity to do something a bit unusual and to find myself in this place where I'm a big believer that when you have opportunities, you have a responsibility to, to use them. Um, things don't happen by accident, that's not my conviction anyway. So then my question becomes, well, well what next? I know some people said, oh well, you know, if you look at a very, very, uh, it's a very dry way of thinking about it, but in a New South Wales high school public, you would say after a head teacher comes a deputy and then a principal and then a director and all that kind of thing. And for a variety of reasons, even though I, I find those roles massively important and decisive for a school and for children, none of those have ever really grabbed me. And there are also, you know, ways that, for example, as a public educator, I could be involved with state office and, and work across the 2,200 public schools in New South Wales, but there are also things about those kinds of roles that I would think, I don't know if I'm a very good fit for those. I, I love being in a school, not uh, out, taken out from that context. So that's why I've been asking myself this question for a number of months now, yeah, actually. And okay. you can tell I'm still wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it, it leads to a question I was gonna ask a bit later, but it's probably good timing now. To what extent are you experiencing a sort of a tall poppy syndrome? Mm. Uh, are, people, are people sick of Eddie Wu being wheeled out all the time for everything. I mean, my personal view, and I'm not being sycophantic here, my personal view is I can listen to you all day long. <laughs> um, but is that a problem for you at school? Has it been a problem for you at all? Well, if I can, if I can reframe it a little bit. Oh, let me give you a direct answer, and then I'll, I'll reframe it a little bit. Um, has it been a problem? I'd say no, is the short answer. But just to give that very direct answer, I think uh, misses out a lot of the nuances. Does, do I experience that? Yes, I absolutely do experience that. Um, I have been for, for several years now, um, especially being that, you know, I, I became a head teacher after teaching for just a bit over six years. Um, and, you know, when I became uh, a leader of a faculty for the first time, by a fair number of years, I was the youngest member of staff on that team. And 
I know what it's like when I look at someone younger than me and I would think, what do you know about the world? I think about me 10 years ago and think, what did that guy know about anything? You know, what an idiot. Um, and I have learned so much over that time. So absolutely, it's a reality and it's part of Australian culture. I think that, you know, we have this characteristic humility and irreverence. I actually think it's one of the most charming things. We never really get, it's kind of like, get over yourself. You know, you're not that big a deal, you're just like the rest of us. I think that's very healthy. Um, but it certainly has been a challenge in, in terms of, you know, when you've got this opportunity to leave. And I certainly wouldn't say that I've, I've you know, deliberately sought out, you know, um, a role of leadership. I know, you know, having worked with people in the past, and you look at me, are you just, are you just building a CV here? Is that what this is all about for you? And that's a disheartening thing to witness. Uh, I've never sought to be that kind of person. I find that quite, you know, um, confronting to see that. I, I don't like it at all. Um, but it certainly has been a reality. And I do sometimes feel as though one of my big responsibilities is to help shine a light on the, the hundreds and thousands of amazing educators all around the country who are doing fantastic work. No one knows about them because I think it's in the nature of most educators to not highlight ourselves. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, there's a real humility that comes with, with you know, most educators and those lights are being, you know, held under bushels um, and I suppose, so do you have the opportunity to go into schools in a capacity other than just as a speaker and as a presenter? Mm -hmm. Where you actually get to see some of that cold face stuff and you go, oh my God, she's an amazing teacher, he's an amazing teacher. What an incredible resource they've developed. What a, what a sense they've got in the classroom where you think students are eating out of their hand. Mm -hmm. you know? do, you, do you get that sort of opportunity? I do get that opportunity, but it's not as much, much as I would like. Yeah. Uh, I certainly feel as though I have gained so much, I mean just for example, um, yesterday the day before I was in southwest New South Wales, so flew into Narendra on a tiny little propeller plane and um, got to work with these schools in Leeton, um, which is not that far from Griffith, for yeah, a couple of days and got to see the fantastic practice that's there. And also, you know, recognising just the, the difference in context and just how even across a single state um, you have such diversity and there's such different um, strategies and priorities and values that are important. So I am learning a whole lot, but I feel like I could do that a lot more. I could make that my yeah. full-time job, to be honest. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you get this opportunity to go into all the schools, as you say, Leeton in that particular case. Do you then have the opportunity to mentor other teachers? Because with your energy, your vitality, your passion for all of this, and the skills that you've developed and the people you've had the opportunity to meet, to share some of that collected wisdom that you've been able to, to gather. And do you have that opportunity to, to mentor? Yeah, I do, it, it varies. I mean, whenever I go to a school, I will have a, a balance of different things I will do. Often I will go in, I'll, I'll work with the kids, and I love doing that. But honestly, the main reason I work with the kids, ironically, is not actually to give the kids something, even though I, I hope I do. It's more important for me to model that practice to the teachers. They're actually my real audience. It's a little bit like, you know, in Japan, they famously have these lesson studies where they've got that space set up, you've got all the, the class in there, but really you've got this theater around them because there is so much to learn from seeing those interactions. And then to follow that up with, you know, the opportunity to unpack that with the staff and say, did you notice this? Did you observe that? What did you learn about your own kids, seeing them in a slightly different environment with different strategies? So that's something I want to do more and more on. Okay, so that, that's another nice segue as well, because we talk a lot, we talk about Finland, we talk about Shanghai, we talk about South Korea, we talk about all these places that are apparently leading the world. Mm -hmm. Where, where's the, and you've just talked about the Japanese lesson study concept. 
what's a little um, snippet, tidbit that you've picked up that you think, wow, it'd be really great if we could share that with a lot of teachers in Australia who aren't getting that opportunity to wow. have that exposure? That is a really, that's a really big question to ask. Um, and also, it's and partly, that's not on the script. Sorry about that. I don't apologise. I one of the reasons why this is tricky to answer, of course, is because and the longer I I work out in different schools in different environments, the, the firmer and firmer this conviction becomes in my mind that uh, you know, like like Dylan Moore so famously says, you know, nothing works everywhere, and everything works somewhere. The real question is about. Uh, under what conditions does a particular strategy, particular method, technique, program, under what conditions does that work and why? And so I don't know if there's a blanket answer that I could provide to that. If I could say the most consistent thing that I've seen, which I would love to, if I could just wave my magic wand and make this happen every single school. Um, I remember when I was in Singapore, which is a very different place to Australia um, for a number of reasons which we'll get into later. but. Despite that difference, the one thing I saw, which I thought, no matter what school you put this into, it's going to be just a, a dynamo for providing um, teachers the opportunity to improve. Um, they had this thing they called timetabled time. Timetable time. So, you know, a typical high school teacher, I've got year 8 here, I've got year 11 there, then I've got year 9. Um, and then what they would have is timetable time, and they're designated there, they're not allowed to just go and do whatever they want, they're designated there um, regularly throughout the week and with different focuses and so on, um, to work within different teams within their department, within their school, um, outside of their department, and the whole idea of, look, the best resource that you have is not on the internet, it's not in a book, it's the person sitting beside you. If we can just provide you the catalyst to unlock that and to have those collegiate conversations to question each other and say, how did that lesson go? Why was that a train wreck? How can we improve this? That is just such a, a powerful thing. Yeah. No matter any context, it would be very, very wonderful for us. <coughs> That's a really great answer and it's really interesting because strangely, surrounded by children, surrounded by other teachers as we are as educators in schools, almost all teachers will tell you that it's a very isolating profession. And part of that isolation that teachers talk about is the idea that they never get a chance to get into somebody else's classroom. Mm. Do you think it's realistic for us because there's a, probably a financial implication of getting people off class, of course, to go and look at other teachers in their school, to, to go to a faculty meetings, for example, to learn in different ways? Can we manage that financial implication? Yeah, yes. that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, in some ways, the way I would answer this question is really to think, <laughs> you asked about financial costs, so I'm going to put my economist hat on, and I would really think about this in terms of opportunity costs. Right? Every time we do something um, and spend money, time on it, that of course is a, a choice that we've made to sacrifice something else. And I think that, yes, it's a reality that uh, that time is not going to come from nowhere, but I think about all of the things that we do, which long term, um, do not add anything to our practice or to the experience of the kids in our classroom. Um, I remember thinking about this when I was talking to my principal a few years back um, as a baby head teacher and I said look how do I help my staff many of whom um, you know they're old enough to be my parents they, they have this wealth of experience um, how do I help them improve their practice because we all can we're educators that's the business we're in. He said to me something I'll never forget he said look they may have more experience right some people have 25 years of experience but some people have one year of experience, 
25 times. And because they've been caught on that treadmill, on that hamster wheel, um, they've not had the opportunity to say, look, I've been very good, very efficient at doing all these tasks, but I've not taken the time to pause, spend an hour, change the direction in which I face my teaching. And that will make a difference for the decades to come and all the kids I care. So it's a really, you know, continuing with your financial uh, sort of modeling there, it's a really great investment. Mm, absolutely. So Eddie, you work in the field of secondary maths. My background is in primary maths and lecturing to primary maths students. And so we're, you know, different ends of the spectrum. What can we do differently? Is there anything, an approach, a style, uh, not so much a technique, but what can we do differently in primary school so that kids are going into secondary school mathematics with more confidence and more interest and more desire to challenge themselves? Yeah, that's a fantastic question and also a very necessary question to ask, I think. Uh, you know, one of the things that this question makes you think about is in my school, I, I try to invest a fair amount of energy into the three feeder primary schools that uh, come into Chamber Technology High School. And one of the questions that was very justifiably leveled at me was, you know, why are you spending all this time, it's an opportunity cost question, why are you spending all of this time investing in these other schools? Number one, you're not doing everything that you possibly can for the students we actually have. Number two, not all of these kids are going to come to our school anyway. Uh, number three, you know, is this really worthwhile? Our remit is we are secondary teachers. We get them at age 12, 13, and then we take it from there. And for me, what that question showed was a lack of understanding of the way that most learning, but particularly learning in mathematics, um, functions. You know, a kid is not a blank slate when they turn up in year seven. They have this history, this background, which I then get to take and continue shaping and molding. It's a story that I get in, I get to insert myself into in the middle of the middle chapter of how it's going. And so for me, I have to recognize there's work that can only be done when a kid is nine, 10, five. And so I think it's wonderful that primary educators think about themselves in this continuum. If I could answer that question in one way, uh, because there are so many things that we all must do. Um, the biggest, most consistent thing I've, I've noticed is the embodied disposition of the teacher toward mathematics and university. It speaks so loudly. And, you know, I, I think that it's really interesting that uh, Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset is really wonderful and has, has opened so many doors and, and uh, so many eyes to people realizing what's happening in their classrooms. But I think on the whole, uh, the main criticism of it I think is true, that we have mostly misapplied it to students having forgotten to apply it first to teachers yeah. and recognizing many secondary but particularly primary teachers. Because people in secondary generally, they're teaching math because they chose it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in primary, of course, this is not the case. Um, I think that attitude speaks so powerfully, no matter how many posters you put up on the wall, no matter how colorful you make your, your handouts, um, that, that apprehension, uh, that anxiety gets brought, and that, that sort of, you know, that fear of questioning. When a kid asks me a question that I don't know the answer to, I'm delighted because that means I have an opportunity to learn something, but I've seen it time and time again, and not just in primary, but particularly in primary, uh, that's almost like the nightmare scenario. It's like, oh no, I don't know what to do with this, and um, and therefore I'm going to, I'm going to panic. I'm going to try and give as controlled an answer as I can, um, and that's not necessarily what's most helpful to the kid to help them become inquisitive and curious and realize that they can develop mathematically as well.
Tim, as you know, because you yourself have done research into this area, mathematics anxiety in an important, a significant adult in a child's life, whether that's parents or some other relative or the teacher, is so decisive in forming a child's view of themselves as a mathematician or more often themselves as not a mathematician. Yeah, that's right. You talked about that embodied disposition and it's so important. You hear a lot of young people these days saying this term, fake it till you make it. And generally speaking, it makes my skin crawl to hear that. <laughs> but I actually believe that in mathematics, in primary school, it's not the worst way to go. Yeah. This idea that you explore these ideas together. I mean, it's actually not about faking it. It's about the idea of saying, well, I actually don't know. How do we find that out and exploring that together and having the confidence and comfort to be able to not necessarily know all the answers. Uh, maths requires effort, as we know. Um, it requires regular and constant application. High school maths, you know, I was at an interview with my year 11 son's maths teacher the other day and he said you need to do half an hour of this every day and unless you're doing this regularly you forget about it and then you can't build on that and I think we're aware of that. That sort of consistent application, effort, hard work isn't necessarily all that attractive to your average teenage kid. Um, it also, so mixed in with the effort, I think it really requires a great degree of confidence and what we would refer to as self-efficacy um, for kids, this sort of sense of self-belief that, yeah, I can put in all the effort and I know that I can do all right if I put in all the effort. Mm. And that self-belief and confidence isn't always there. Mm. How do we develop that perfect storm of confidence mm. and effort in order to achieve well mathematically? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So this question of growing confidence is a really tricky thing because it's it's one of those aspects where you know it, it feels like you're sort of grabbing something intangible. You're like, how do you make a kid confident? You can't tell them, be confident, kid. Like that's the most. It's a bit like telling some uh, adolescent, you know, boy trying to muster up the courage to ask a girl out on a date. It's like just be yourself. It's like that's true, but also the least helpful advice you could possibly give. Um, and I say that from experience. So for me, this idea of developing confidence, um, I think maybe a helpful metaphor here or a comparison might be with uh, say how children learn music and this is this is personal for me because when I was six seven years old like many migrant children I got forced to learn the piano because you know learning an instrument like the piano or violin is a real sign of you know um, you, you've made it you know you've got this expensive instrument you can afford expensive lessons and so on I did it for two years I hated every minute of it because I have, I have fairly, well at least back then, I have fairly stubby fingers. I could not reach an octave from one thumb to the end of my finger, little finger. And so for me, it was just uh, such torture to have to go through this experience. And I re it turned me off music for years. Fast forward, 11, 12 years, final year of high school, and I was um, now at the opportunity where I could pick up and learn the acoustic guitar for myself. Um, and for me, the difference in those two experiences was like night and day. You know, the joy that I felt picking up this instrument and, and humming, humming on it and making a song um, was quite astonishing. And I thought to myself on reflection, how can it be that this one reality of music can be experienced in such different emotional ways for, from the same person and all that separated was time? And I realized, you know, music, and here comes my comparison with mathematics, right? Music is an incredibly diverse discipline. Playing the piano is completely different to playing the guitar, which is completely different to playing um, a woodwind instrument or percussion. And, you know, 
How crazy it would be if we said to some kid who had you know, no gift in a particular musical instrument, it's like, well, just sorry, you are just not musical. Forget it, you know, pack up shop. That would be a terrible missed opportunity. What we would say is, there's some other instrument that's for you. Let's find that. And I think many kids, they get held up in something like, say, algebra or trigonometry or whatever it is. And unfortunately, the, the rigid structure of most mathematics curriculum in Australia and around the world sort of blocks kids into that, doesn't give them the opportunity to develop that confidence in another sphere within mathematics. So I think a bit of flexibility in the way we learn that's for our kids yeah. would go a long way to developing that. Yeah, well, great, great response. And um, the thing is, as you say, it is quite lockstep and we, at a time where kids are probably questioning who they are more than ever, they're doing some of the trickiest maths. So when I talk to students about when they really got turned off maths, if they have been, it's often that year eight in high year 10, mm. which coincides with the, the trickier level of maths, numbers start going out the window and letters start replacing them. Definitely. Um, and also probably the trickiest time in their personal development, Gosh. which is problematic. Um, <clears throat> Let's talk quickly about your own kids. Now you've got, I think you've got three kids. Is that right? Yes. How old are your kids now? My kids are five, eight, and ten. So they're right in there, that primary age sweet yeah. spot. So. I, I met Parsi Salberg recently, and I, he was talking about his kids, and I was thinking, man, it must be a stressful situation being Parsi Salberg's <laughs> kids teacher. <laughs> I imagine it'd be stressful for your kids teachers to teach maths to your kids. Hmm? On a slightly different tangent, though, what is it you actually want for your kids? from their education. So not, not school specific, not content specific, but what, what is it that you want for your, mm. your own children? Yeah. This is a question I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I think what I want for them is to be equipped and encouraged to try hard things and flourish in the world and find the way that their gifts can serve the community that they're gonna be a part of. And, you know, I think about the fact that um, so much of schooling is spent on trying to measure and try to work and assess and say, you know, how, how smart are you um, in this area or this area? And I think that, um, as was very cleverly said by someone once, we should, instead of asking that question, how smart are you? How smart is Tim? We should be asking, how is Tim smart? What, what are the gifts that he has that we can grow and that we can nurture? What are the ways that we can encourage him to do the hard work of learning? Because all real learning is tough. Um, and then find a place in which you can use and serve with those gifts in the community they'd be a part of. If my kids' schooling experience gives them that, I'd be pretty happy. Yeah. So, um, parents, as we are constantly hearing and knowing, and as a parent of young kids yourself, you know, parents are generally very concerned and fearful about how our children interact with technology, with social media. Um, how do you feel about that as a dad of young kids and as an educator? Um, because I think we're probably all fairly clear that there are some real pluses and some real minuses. Um, what should we really be concerned about, in your opinion, and what should we really be excited about if we're going to look at the pluses and minuses? Yeah, great question. It's interesting because um, literally just before I came here on the plane, I was reading a book called On Us by Mark Scott, which directly answers this question about this great social experiment we've been doing by unleashing smartphones on the entire population. Not knowing what the outcome's gonna Precisely, be. Precisely, exactly. Now, I guess for me, uh, as you've pointed out, every technology, uh, it, it gives and it takes away. And I think it's, it's silly to, to try and live in an imagined world where we can just pretend technology doesn't exist because that's not the world that our kids are uh, living in now nor heading into. 
but we also would make a terrible mistake to, to not being wise to the things which we are surrendering when we give ourselves over to technology, when we, you know, when we tick that box and say, I have read the terms and conditions which no one ever has. And of course, included within that is these, these rights that we give up, this, this attention that we surrender. Um, I definitely think that it's wise to think about both sides of things. I guess when I think about, as a parent, what's my thought on this? You know, uh, even as short as just 10 years ago, no one could have predicted, for example, the way that social media, just to pick one instance, would have a profound effect on the politics of the world. Massive. Has affected uh, democracy, elections, in very profound ways. 10 years ago, as these technologies were just starting up, no one could have guessed that that would have happened, but that is the reality nonetheless. I think what we need to be able to say is not, you know, have the, the boldness, the gumption to say, I think I know what's coming next. That's clearly a fool's, uh, a fool's errand, you know, errand to try and guess that. But instead, to be able to say, look, I want my kids to be, number one, very good at asking questions of whatever situation they go into. So many situations we find ourselves in now, we, it's not that we asked questions and didn't know the answers. We just didn't ask the question at all about, okay, what are we giving up when we uh, give all of this data to these companies who are quite willing to sell it for different purposes and then give it to advertisers or marketing agencies? To even ask that question, I think, is very profound. And then secondly, to always be asking, what is the purpose of a technology that's given to us? Um, what is the technology um, and its purpose that we're taking on when we use it? You know, educationally, there are, I've, I've sort of made my name, for lack of a better way to say it, through an educational technology, but it was not set out, it was not created with education in mind. So there was a purpose that its creators had in mind, there's a purpose that I had in mind, and then everyone has their agenda, for lack of a better way to say it, that they bring to the technology, and to think carefully about what that is and its implications, those are the things I want my kids to be equipped yeah. to ask about. Gabby Stroud talks in her book, and I know you've been on the panel with her, and she talks about in her book this idea that a lot of teachers, well, she talks about herself, and I think there's a broad application of this, that she originally thought she was burnt out, and that's why she left the profession, but I think she said something very profound and interesting when she realised that she's not actually burnt out, she was demoralised by the system, she was demoralised by the bureaucracy, by the expectations, by the, the constant testing, the constant need for applying grades, the competition, all of those aspects that a lot of primary teachers really struggle with and they sort of put up with. It's, it's that idea of boiling a, a frog, you know, a frog jumps into a pot of cold water, everything's fine and the heat is very, very gradually applied and before they know it, they're in a pot of boiling water and I think a lot of teachers feel that way. Mm. If that is the case, what sort of role, what, what ideas have you got around the idea of, of teachers being able to avoid that and to really use the sort of passion and drive that you've got for a long career? Because from my perspective, I think it would be wonderful if you stay in the classroom for, until you take your last breath. <laughs> I for your case, you can do a few other things as well. But how do we t keep really good teachers in the classroom for as long as we can, rather than having this incredible attrition rate, mm. which is caused by this sort of, potentially by this sort of demoralisation? Mm, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's tried for me to think that I can, uh, in, a, in a sound bite sort of answer, give a, uh, an adequate response. 
to the reality that Gabby identifies. I mean, I think she is in many ways absolutely right because to say you burnt out, um, the way to fix being burnt out is just go take a break. Yeah. And you know what she experienced, and her, she is certainly not alone. Um, is not that she had just expended her energy. It's that what she had expended her she had expended her energy on was, as I think she correctly identifies in many regards, misdirected. And, and in some cases, uh, much worse than Mr. Ado, it was pointless or even destructive to kids. You know, I think about the increasing amount of measurement and assessment that we do. Um, you know, they talk about you know how how much time do you spend weighing your pig. I, I actually think a, a more apt metaphor would be to say, you know, every time you you grind the school to a halt and you say we're going to go put you through this very rigorous assessment uh, regime. I think rather than like getting a pig and putting them on scales, I think it's a little more akin to taking a tree, ripping it by its roots, placing it on a scale, and then say, well, how heavy is this thing? And then daring to put it back in the ground as if everything is, is unaffected by that process. So I think measurement can be a violent thing, and I think Gabby's experience of that uh, is very real. I guess there, there are two ways that I would answer this. Number one, we as teachers need to recognize that we have to be very judicious about what it is that we choose to spend our time invested in. And I think that you know part of what it means to be a good teacher is to say, yes, I have these 100 tasks, which I could do, and I'm gonna spend time focused on these, and I'm not gonna spend time focused on these. Yeah, for example, if you look at the K to 10 mathematics syllabus, if you spent one lesson on every single syllabus dot point, you would be, the sun would set, you know, the, the, the heat death of the universe would, would descend. Um, you just can't do that. A good teacher knows, you know, it's, they make a value judgment. They say, I'm going to emphasize this. This is a single point I'm going to pour myself into. Here's five points. We're gonna skip over these because they matter, but not in comparison to other things. So I think as teachers, we need to be very judicious about that. But of course, that alone is not enough. Um, I think there's a real call on, on leadership, on the structures that we've placed ourselves within to say some of these things should change. They have strayed from their original intent or design. Uh, perhaps they have not themselves strayed from their design, but the world around them has changed. And this tool is no longer fit for purpose. It's time to adapt for the sake of our kids. Yeah. We've taken up a lot of your time, Eddie. I'm going to ask you one more question, which is what brings you joy? <laughs> What brings me joy is, um, it's complicated. Uh, even though in some ways it's a very simple direct thing. Uh, the simple direct answer is, the impact that I as an educator can have on the life of a child. That, that in a nutshell. You know, I, I have had over the last two years this role with the New South Wales Department of Education where I'm still based at school, I'm still teaching, but I also have the privilege of traveling around New South Wales and even Australia. Um, you know, running professional learning, workshops for kids, all that kind of thing. And I remember meeting um, a parent at school whose child I had taught a previous year, uh, just after I had started on this role last year. And um, she said to me, she was very, very you know, lovely and effusive, she said, you know, congratulations on getting this role. And she said this sentence, which she meant as a compliment. And I, I took it as a compliment, but I, I couldn't let it go. She said to me, we always knew you were destined for bigger things. And I knew what she meant, but I paused and I thought, no, you know what, I'm gonna correct you there. Because I wholeheartedly believe that there is no bigger thing than having a deeper, profound impact on the life of a single child. Uh, sure, I get to talk to more people, 
that's great. I get to talk to people in more geographically spread out areas, that's lovely. But having the, the life-on-life -life interaction over the course of many years with, with one other human being, and to know that I get to change the trajectory of their life forever, that's a big deal, and that brings me immense joy. Well, Eddie, thank you so much for your time. You are an incredibly generous man with your time, and uh, you're, it's, it's a real treat for me to have uh, had a chance to talk to you. Um, it's been a total delight. Good on you, Eddie. Thanks yeah. so much. Pleasure is all mine. All right, good on you. If you enjoyed that conversation, please don't forget to like this podcast episode and perhaps even leave a comment on the podcast wherever you get this, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify or, or Podbean. It really does help us uh, in terms of getting more exposure. And also don't forget, please, to share it as wide as you can in your network. If you'd like to know more about the work we do or perhaps you have a question for an upcoming episode or perhaps you'd like to suggest a guest or even be a guest on the habits of leadership podcast then head over to habitsofleadership.com and drop us a note there and please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast hope you enjoyed this episode until next time my name is dan hasler take care take it easy